Uh, this is Ian Harvey, Tokyo US Brand Manager. I'm here with Caitlin Patterson. Caitlin has 72 World Cup, World Championship, and Olympic starts. She has 19 podiums at the US Nationals and has won the US National Championship seven times. Despite seeming to be a pure distance racer, she has two US National Sprint titles showing that she is a true all-arounder and in both classic and skate. Caitlin has 12 individual World Cup top 30 results and was fourth in Pyeongchang at the pre-Olympic World Cup, as well as 26th in Pyeongchang at the Olympic Games. Her brother is U.S. cross-country ski Olympian Scott Patterson. Caitlin is 30 years old and is clearly in the elite echelon of Nordic skiers in the history of the United States. Thank you very much for being here with me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, this is a treat. Um, can we start out by you telling us where you grew up and how you started ski racing, please? Sure. Um, I, my family grew up, or I grew up with my family in McCall, Idaho, which is a small mountain town north of Boise. And um, great place for skiing, cross country and downhill both. And so we were a very active outdoors family. And my mom had cross country skied. I think she learned maybe when she was in middle school or high school. And she was enthusiastic about it by, by the time she was an adult and brought my brother and I into the cross country skiing fold. Um, we were going to the, we had a little ski hill um, actually called the Little Ski Hill that had both a small T-bar and had Nordic trails there. And so most days after school, I think we would end up at the Little Ski Hill and, um, and at, at first going to just a few little Nordic practices. And then it blossomed into more and more Nordic practices, like probably just about every day after school. Um, skiing around in the woods with friends and, and drinking hot chocolate and, and generally having fun with it. But I wouldn't say I was super serious or thought of it as a, um, a career pathway or anything. It was just something to do outside with friends. Um, and then little by little, it got, got a little bit more serious. I think I did my first ski race when I was about eight years old. There was a um, a festival called the Western States Festival that went across several of the different Western states, Idaho, um, Montana, Wyoming, and we went to Sun Valley, Idaho, and did the Western States, and they had a downhill competition and um, a few sort of more normal races, one to 3k length, but also this downhill and an obstacle course race. And it was probably on account of those races that I really fell in love with it. Um, not only the fun of the obstacle course and the downhill, but also um, getting positive reinforcement of being able to do well relative to my peers at a one or 2k and, and it just kind of clicking that, um, going out into the woods and trying to get from one point to the next fairly quickly was working well for me as a young person. Um, yeah, so that was kind of my, my start in skiing. And I always did, um, we did some alpine skiing also. So just all sorts of things outside and soccer and a little bit of gymnastics and various other sports, um, cross country running. Um, but I was definitely heading more towards the endurance side of thing and enjoying skiing the most. So McCall seems to me to be an extremely underrated outdoor Mecca. There are so many fantastic places to ski there. And I love the big forest and big trees and the lakes and good snow conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, would you agree McCall's severely underrated as an outdoor town? 
Yeah, probably so. I mean, it's it's a little bit secluded out there, slightly hard to get to, um, kind of twisty canyon road to get there from Boise. Um, but it definitely, it was a great place to grow up. Yes, yeah, so, so much snow and um, and yeah, and as you said, plenty of places to ski. And I think even since then, I've only been back a few times um, last year um, or yeah, like a year and a half ago, we went back and there are some trails named after my brother and I at um, the Bear Basin ski area, which was really fun and fun to, um, to see that community of skiers and and talk to some of the junior and up and coming skiers there. Um, but that Bear Basin area was never around when I was there. And, and so things are always changing, but I think it does have a, a vibrant, if small ski community. Even over the past 10 years, it seems like there've been a number of Alpine and Nordic areas that have opened and then closed and other ones popped up. It seems like a never ending rotation of places to ski. But I really yeah. like, like for example, Ponderosa State Park, the trees there are huge. Yep. And the yeah, it's easy and kind of skier friendly. And it's really special to be able to ski through those massive trees. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I did a lot of skiing at Ponderosa too when I was young. Um, it was Little Ski Hill in Ponderosa. Um, and yeah, that's it's a really special environment. And it's kind of out on a point in the middle of the, the lake. And yeah, a very unique place. Definitely recommended. Yeah. So when did you move to Alaska? We moved up to Alaska when I was 14, which was just starting high school um, and moved because of a job of one of my parents. And, um, but it was a place that we were willing to move because both my brother Scott and I were, were getting a little bit more serious about skiing or, or thought it was something important to us. And so we were m willing to move to Alaska because we knew the ski scene was um, perhaps even more vibrant up there in Alaska. And, um, and in Anchorage, the big city has so many club programs and high school programs and a really strong ski scene. So you want to give a brief description of your, I guess, when you lived in, Anch in, in Anchorage? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I lived in Anchorage with my family during high school. And then I would always go back there during summers between my college years as well. Um, but in high school, um, started out uh, and joined the, the high school ski team. We went to South High School down in the, the southern end of Anchorage. And Sarah Miller was the coach there and really great. Um, it, was, it was a great environment for skiing, just super fun, probably like 80 or 100 kids on the high school ski team. Um, and a very different scene than I'd come from in, in Idaho with a really small school and all of a sudden in a, a school of 2000 with this big ski team, but it was great. And then um, pretty soon after getting there, I think we, um, my brother and I both joined Alaska Winter Stars Training Club with, with Jan Buran and Jan was definitely um, crucial for developing into a better and better skier and, and really, um, yeah, he's great for, he's great with the, the kids and bringing out the side of people when they want to work really hard and, and do some tough ski training and showing them the way to do circuits or threshold workouts or roller skiing. <laughs> we spent so much time doing roller ski technique around parking lots and such things. But um, yeah, I think all of that really paid off well and set me up well to keep skiing as long as I have. Super. One other interesting aspect, in one way, McCall and Anchorage are opposites, not only because McCall's small and Anchorage has got a lot of skiers, but 
if you were to do a ski race outside of McCall, what would, probably Boise up at Focus Basin would have been your shortest drive? Did you ever do yeah. a ski race outside of McCall? Yeah, yeah, we did a few like Western states. So yeah, Boise is probably about the closest. Um, yeah, it certainly was not a day trip to go to a ski race. It was a overnight plan to stay somewhere and go to a ski race, but we'd go to Boise or Sun Valley or Pocatello. So all of those are a few hours drive. Yeah, yeah that's the point I was making. Whereas in Anchorage, you have got four really good venues. And mm -hmm. if you're skiing against other, other schools, more likely you're just skiing in Anchorage. You're looking yep. at a minute drive. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it definitely has really good access to all those trails and yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, do, you want, do you want to mention anything about college? Um, well, I could say, I mean, I after high school in Alaska and then I was looking around at colleges and decided I wanted to um, make a little life change or we all need a little um, change of scene, get away from the parents, whatever that may be. So I chose to go to the University of Vermont um, to ski as well as to study civil engineering out east and I think I'd had a little bit of a um, not the most stellar senior year for high school skiing like racing okay but not that great and so I went into college and and I think my expectations and the coach's expectations were maybe sort of moderate and I had a really great first year in college um, my freshman year I think I think I won or I was at least on the podium of a few college carnivals. Um, so that set me off to a, a good note for UVM. And I had a great time there being part of the ski team for all four years too. I guess too, if you don't, you're looking at growing up in a teeny town that's very isolated in the mountain West and then going to a hotbed of skiing like Anchorage where everything is, you've got about 800 high school skiers or something like that within 15 minutes of you. It's all right there. But then going to the New England College Carnival circuit was a whole different experience in the American skiing world. And it's also quite unique and really enthralling. Would you say the American, the college circuit and the New England especially is, is quite unique? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Um, yeah, and that was part of the draw of it for me when I, when I thought about whether I wanted to go west to Western colleges or Eastern colleges. And I heard about this carnival circuit and uh, the fact that it would, um, that I could go race every weekend and not have to have huge drives or plane rides, but we just have a few hour drives. And so, because school was also important to me. Um, so yeah, the, the, the carnival circuit is, is quite fun. And in some ways, I think it does have some parallels to Alaska high school skiing, because it's just this, this massive gathering of of all sorts of people of various ability levels and seriousness about the sport. Um, but yeah, really, I mean, not that, not that you should expect like a true carnival out of the carnival scene, but it is a little bit of a, a party and social gathering um, in itself. That's what I was going to say. It's much more of a party, I think, than the college scenes in other regions. And there's a mix of very serious, even though the very serious though tend to have a lot of fun. But there's also quite a lot of people there who are, they don't have any illusions of making Olympic team. They're just loving skiing and the social scene. And it's, it's a much bigger scene because there are more colleges involved in that yeah. than there are the other regions. It's pretty yeah, I think I think maybe more colleges and then just the fact of proximity, the fact that you can 
take a bus. So like Dartmouth has a full development team or UNH has a big development team. Um, so that really facilitates that more people can be involved in the sport. And, and yeah, as you said, not everyone's chasing Olympic dreams. Some people are just love to be out with their friends and, and think skiing is a cool way to stay involved. And, and so, yeah, it's pretty great to see that scene. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of neat that you've experienced three quite different aspects to the U.S. ski culture, ski racing culture, you know, that's mm -hmm. pretty cool. Yeah. School ski racing culture. So after you graduated from UVM, you stuck around in Vermont. Mm -hmm. You decided you opted for the green racing project. Um, you lived in Alaska through your high school years and you were in the Intermountain West. You had a lot of choices. What led you to go to Craftsbury? Yeah, so it was certainly a, a weighing of options and considering what sort of decision I wanted to make, but I was very attracted to Craftsbury by um, Peppa as a coach. Um, not only is she a female coach, but and very strong, opinionated, knowledgeable, um, big physiology background and clearly very dedicated to her athletes as I've now experienced firsthand. Um, but it also the green team or yeah, green team as we call it, the, the green racing project is um, it has, it's meant to be a team with a conscience, a little bit of an environmental conscience. So we, um, and while it's certainly not perfect and we do still travel because that's the nature of elite sport, we, we get on planes, but it's meant to be a team that cares about its community and cares about the environment um, and does what it can, various projects around, um, especially around Vermont um, to, to build on those goals. So that was appealing to me as well as it's a team to, um, we have these various work projects so that we can stay as more more balanced and well-rounded people. So rather than soul-focused, soul single-mindedly pursuing skiing and having nothing else, but we have this community around us and, and projects that we can always um, keep a little bit stimulated with those. So that was appealing, um, as well as a really great support and, and training environment. Um, yeah, so all of that really drew me to the green team and staying in Vermont. Um, I can't remember, when was the green team formed and how soon was that before you joined? It seems like you were one of the earliest members. Um, I wasn't actually quite early and, and now now that um, incredibly, this is my, wait, is this, yeah, this is my eighth year on the team, I think. Um, and I don't know where all the years went, but um, but it has been great. Um, when, I, when I joined, I felt like there had already been several important years that had happened. So the green team was founded, I believe in 2009. Um, and it was the, the first few members were Tim Reynolds had graduated that year and Hannah Dreisigacker. Um, and Lauren Jacobs, Chelsea Little. So there was a there was an era there. Um, and so I think my first year is 2012 must have been the third or fourth year of the team. So there had been there had been some um, eras before that. But I also joined a, a group of athletes, a few of which had been on the team since the beginning. I want to I want to come back to something. But first, I want to ask you quick, what's it what's it like? Being a member, you've already talked a little bit about it. And is the training that you do with the green team, is it different from more the conventional training of other teams? I've seen Peppa be pretty creative here and there. 
Yeah, there's there's aspects of it that are creative. I think there's a lot of aspects of ski training that anyone around the country, around the world is putting in the hard work. I mean, roller skiing, running, strength training, sure, little variations, but um, but there's just a lot of hard work there. Um, we, we do have fun with like our grass ski speeds, um, which is a, a pretty fun way to stay in touch with the ski seal, even when we don't have access to snow. Um, we've Let's see, Peppa is really into, into testing. There's a lot of physiology testing. So we use a ski erg and some VO2 masks to um, test and check in on our numbers. And, and then Peppa uses that to guide the training or, um, or see who's anaerobic or aerobic focus and where we need to go from there. Um, but yeah, I think, I don't, I don't think it has huge deviations from from the normal i think we're lucky that we have really great training facilities right here and so um, most of us skiers live in a ski house that's um, uh, just on the outskirts of the Crassberry outdoor center and we do the majority of our training within probably a 20 or 30 mile radius so really really tight to the center while we're around here um, and then certainly in the winter we end up traveling and racing around um, but yeah i've I wouldn't say there's there's not too much that's that vastly different. Yeah. So Green Team has, especially recently, had some quite elite men. Um, ben Lusgarden and Akio and um, you've had some quite elite men on the program. Mm -hmm. But I would say uh, in terms of performance, it's been far weighted towards elite women between yourself and Ida. Caitlin mm -hmm. Miller, um, some of the female biathletes have been quite successful. Liz Guinea, you've got you've mm -hmm. got quite a lot of successful women and a really really strong women's training group there. Yeah. Uh, do you think in part that's because women were especially interested in working with Peppa because she's a female? Not that I know um, she's a great trainer. It's obvious, and she's been very yeah. successful with the men. I'm not I'm not trying to say something. I'm just saying, is it attractive as you alluded to already? to work with a female coach. Yeah, I think it definitely is. Um, and yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure why we've managed to create such a strong women's group and that the men have sometimes been on a little different wavelength. I, I do think they're, yeah, it's a very strong group of them too, but historically um, they weren't, weren't quite up there at the same level. Um, but I, yeah, I do think for, for women, it's very attractive to have a female coach. Um, depending on the personality and then for men also. And I think maybe what I've seen over the years of teammates on this team is, um, is maybe that men as athletes are sort of like more likely to have like headbutting or like personality conflicts with a female coach. Um, yeah. Just, I don't know, drawing generalizations or um, yeah, I, I think, I think there's some personality dynamics at play there, but but I certainly know that um, that everyone who's who's on the team right now is working very successfully with Peppa, and all of us um, really appreciate her dedication and expertise. I'm of the opinion that she's quite a successful and very effective coach, and I would mm -hmm. say of the three, you've got two men on the team who have skied World Cups quite often regularly. Um, and, and then Akio, who, who won the Berkey and has been quite successful himself, 
I think all three of them have gotten substantially better since coming there. Mm -hmm. And in their first year, especially, has been quite successful. So it seems to me she's very effective coaching men and women. I'm not okay. trying to make a point. I was just yeah. trying to say, you alluded to earlier that that was one of the things that, that attracted you about skiing for the green team was that Peppa was the coach and you liked mm -hmm. the fact that, that she had a reputation that seemed to jive with you, but also that she was female. So I just want to explore that. And, yeah. and clearly the women on the, on the Craftsbury team have been super successful, which is, yeah. which is great to see. Yeah. Yeah. And I, well, maybe, yeah. And we, we have a unique setup with having a biathlon team and skiing both. So like in, um, in 2018, I think there were six of us um, Olympians from the green team split between biathlon and skiing. And um, yeah, yeah, I don't know what, what exactly it's attributable to, but I do know that Pep is a great coach for, for anyone who's, um, yeah, of a certain personality mindset, especially. She certainly seems to be very effective. Uh, no question about it. Um, so I have a question. You, you also addressed this somewhat earlier, but I wanted to suss it out a little bit more, um, especially given that you seem to be interested in civil engineering. You just started a program in civil engineering. On the Green Racing Project under sustainability, on the website under sustainability, it says, Green Racing Project athletes engage with being environmentally green as they blend the explicitness of their athletic goals with a broader understanding of the ecosystem they work within. I know Akio had a, a work project where he was tasked with improving the heating and efficiency of the buildings on the campus. Do you call it a campus? What do you call it? Yeah, Center? yeah, campus is right. Um, so I wanted to just give you an opportunity to talk about the vision of the Green Racing Project and if you also had a kind of an on-campus job, uh, which might be interesting to talk about. Yeah. So let's see. As I um, as I mentioned before, we're we try to be a team with an environmental conscience. Just um, yeah, not perfect. We still do travel on airplanes, but um, but when we're around here and we are around the Craftsbury Outdoor Center during the summers, and we stay close and try to try to carpool a lot or ride our bikes back and forth, um, and then um, yeah, in the the Craftsbury Outdoor Center mission is three-part which is to support and promote participation in lifelong sport with a special focus on skiing and rowing and then and biathlon um, to use and teach sustainable practices and to protect and manage the surrounding land lake and trails and so our team definitely feeds into that as i as i mentioned earlier we do work projects and most of those work projects are kind of basically for the Crossbury Outdoor Center. Some, a few of them revolve around keeping our team operating and, and some social media presence or such, but, but a lot of it is at the Outdoor Center. So anything from trail work and lake monitoring to, um, yeah, to building design and, um, well, social media presence for the Outdoor Center to kids coaching. So the whole, whole range of things um, and projects and, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how, how we bring sustainability into it. Um, we try to share what we've done, um, as a center and there's, I've, I've been involved with a few energy analysis projects that we've kept track of what kind of energy, um, 
like heating oil, fuel, electric, all those sort of things are used on the center and, and little by little, even during my time here, I've certainly seen things transition as we move towards um, more solar panels or, um, or take a few buildings off the propane heating system or the fuel oil. Um, so I think, yeah, I think in that sense and our involvement with the outdoor center is really, um, really a great thing for the sustainability side of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just wanted to go back. I, I was blanking on Adam Martin's name. Just oh, yeah. And he's been very successful working under Pepa. And I just wanted to point that out mm -hmm. because he and Ben Lusgarten seem to absolutely thrive under Pepa and Akio has obviously yeah. done well too. So I just yeah. wanted to point that out. Yeah. 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 And actually right now, well, Ben, um, Ben Lusgarten is semi-retired. He's going to, he's going to be back for sure, but um, I know he is. <laughs> he's not actively with us here at the green, um, at Crossbury right now. And so then we, we have one other um, guy team member who's Braden Becker, a little bit younger, but definitely um, beginning to make more and more of a mark too. Cool. Yeah. I saw Ben um, doing intervals a few times already this fall on roller mm -hmm. skis. Which means he means business. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So when I think about Craftsbury, I think the, the, the next question has to do with communication. And Craftsbury has said one of the team members' jobs is to communicate about, not only about the outdoor center, but about living green in general and perhaps how, to, how the craft, what the Craftsbury way is. And when I think about Craftsbury, it brings to mind places in especially Scandinavia, but also in Central Europe, but especially in Sweden, for example, where you know that they're, they're living in a sustainable manner. They're sporting complexes that are run in a sustainable manner. And they've done all sorts of innovative things like turning garbage into energy and, and low, low emissions of whatever it is that they're doing. And they've been really creative and inspirational. And I think a reaction to anybody who's a cross-country skier, because we're all eco-friendly, is to think, man, I wish we did that in the United States. And the reality is we do at Craftsbury. And I, I think that the level of awareness outside of New England is very low regarding Craftsbury. So I wanted to ask you about that task from the website again that the, that the Craftsbury Adore Center has given the athletes with communicating about the Craftsbury way. Yeah. And yeah, that's, it's a good point. And I think, well, we, we just went through a website um, a revamp of the website, I think last year or so. And, and our information is a little better on this new website, but I do think it's been a, a hole in the um, engagement with the outside world or, or just or sharing the mission. But um, around here, we've done a few energy tours and, and other like occasionally at, um, at, at open houses or so we'll, we'll walk community members around the center. But I do think it, it's quite a unique place and, um, and facilitated by the generosity of, of Judy Gear and Dick Dreisagacker who kind of oversee it. But um, yeah, little by little, all of these buildings have been um, more and more green. We, um, let's see, I'm looking out over, there's one of the first projects was some solar trackers in the field. So the, the big um, distinctive solar panels, which I think if anyone thinks of craft spray, that's probably one of the iconic images. But then the ski lodge has a lot of innovative energy saving um, features as well. And actually that was one of my projects and one of 
one of probably my favorite projects of involvement around here in the center is the ski lodge and several other buildings were designed by an architect, Patrick Kane, who's local to this area. And during the design process, I was able to intern with him and, and kind of help with some research projects and bounce ideas around and, um, and help with that, just uh, understanding how the users would use the building. So, um, so the building, it has, um, it's definitely some passive solar heating, some some special walls and roof overhang design optimized to bring in the the winter sun and and composting toilets and um, and heat pumps and yeah there's there's a lot behind the scenes that that is making this kind of more in the Scandinavian model of of trying to take care of the um, the earth and the environment that we're in. Akio mentioned also take using heat that the generator emits from running yeah. and heating water with it and using that water then to heat buildings and so on. You know, there's a lot yeah. of really creative forward thinking going on there. And to me, one of the most um, high profile obvious things is the way you store snow through the summer and then uncover it to be used in the fall, which is way more eco-friendly and economical than shooting snow. Mm -hmm. And the challenge of, even though Craftsbury is in the northern United States, it's actually very far south when it comes to the Nordic ski world. And so it, the challenge of trying to store snow like that in such a southern location relative, again, to the rest of the world, the ski world, it seems like that should be featured in all sorts of magazines, skiing and mag management, any kind of eco-friendly magazine, much less just regular mainstream news outlets. Yeah. And I'm kind of frustrated that it's not because I'm proud of what Craftsbury does as a Nordic skier and a person who loves nature and the outdoors. And, and I think so often we take our inspiration as a community that's eco-friendly from Europe when I think we can look at Craftsbury and be proud of Craftsbury and try to emulate and celebrate Craftsbury. So to me, that's frustrating, at least from my perspective, that Craftsbury hasn't gotten more recognition, not just to pat them on the back, but also to be proud of ourselves. It's an opportunity to be proud of ourselves as a community. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's valid. And, and I hope there will be more and more sharing about these projects in the future. Um, the snow project, it's, it is relatively new. So maybe the trickle down, trickle through the news will, um, will continue to happen more and more because it was, um, it's been a project of a, a UVM geology professor who's, um, who's, who has ties to the center. Um, he was studying and some of his graduate assistants were studying the, the snow melt and the optimal pile coverings and such. So last year was the first year of the full pile. And this year will just be the second year that we've used it. And, and in fact, last year was maybe kind of a strange year because we were waiting for the ground to freeze. Um, and then bef like just about as the ground froze so that they could begin trucking the snow out onto courses, then we got a big snowstorm. So it was, it was kind of a ironic year that there wasn't this dramatic rollout of put the white ribbon out and, and let people ski on it. But it was just all of a sudden winter was here. Um, and then I know they used the pile snow later when, when they needed to, um, fill in through some tougher snow times but um, but yeah I hope I hope that it'll be more and more publicized and it is a cool project um, yeah definitely I think I think it is the only one of its kind in the U.S. but 
as the U.S. is somewhat more southern than so many of those places in Finland and Norway that saves snow. So it, um, yeah, luckily this one's been studied by the research scientists who can begin to, to draw conclusions about how to do it best. Yeah, and, and because it's so southern, it makes it unique in the world. And mm -hmm. because of that, the, the guy from UVM and the Craftsbury people have had to be innovative. They've been testing different insulators, what depth, how much insulation, as you said, mm -hmm. all the different, the timing, testing all sorts of things, even to see if it's feasible. Mm -hmm. And to me, that would be quite interesting for a news outlet because it's a developing story. Yeah. You no, know, it's like there's a level, there's an element of unsureness to it. Well, this yeah. is what we're trying, and this is what we're trying to get accomplished. And so you do a story on that, and then you do a story in the fall to see how it kind of worked out, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm still, I'm not giving the media a pass because <laughs> okay. I think it's a really interesting story. Sounds good. Well, any any media people who are listening to this, they can they can call us up at Craftsbury, and we've got plenty of stories about the snow, and and hopefully here in like, yeah, actually in about a month or so, we'll be thinking about rolling that out. Yeah, super. Okay. Well, as I mentioned earlier, you're for sure one of the most in the elite echelon of skiers in the history of the country. So we need to get back. For me. That what we've been talking about is very ski related or even skiing, but, but let's talk specifically about skiing. Okay. Um, so Caitlin, you've been quite close to the red group here and there. What do you think you have to improve on in order to make the red group? Yeah, this is, this is a good question. And I've been thinking about this for a little bit since you mentioned it. Um, and I, yeah, it's also hearing your stat that I've had 72 World Cup starts and, and wow, that, um, that number sounds a lot bigger than it's felt from, from racing them. And, um, and to, so, like, to so many extents, while I am getting adjusted to the circuit and, and so much of it can be about confidence and knowing that you belong in the circuit, um, but then it also at other times feels like I'm just, I've just gotten there. I need to figure it out. Um, so there have been quite a few moments in my career and, and times on the World Cup when I felt like I'm just, just so close from really making a breakthrough. Um, and yeah, it's such a combination of factors. So I think for me, it probably, it comes down to confidence in myself all the training I've done the fact that I do belong there among the top skiers in the world um, and then also just um, just increase like sustainable speed and ability to match surges and recover from them and um, yeah and just pure ski speed ability to move quickly on the skinny skis um, yeah so along along those lines I guess I've been focusing i'm always focusing on efficiency of movement of just um, really making every ski movement count and then also power um, power and speed the ability that that ability to to generate um, some real speed at a quick turnover um, so what your comments kind of bring up a question to me i didn't look i haven't considered you're you're, you're good in sprints and you're good in distance races so i never really considered this though do you think you're disadvantaged in mass starts at the World Cup level because of a lack of acceleration? Or 
are you able to accelerate quite well? I don't know the answer. That's why I'm asking um, <laughs> that a little bit. No, the, the answer is probably I, I could use some more acceleration power. Um, I, well, well, if you look at my race results from a domestic side and, and people can see that I have won nationals for sprinting and on the domestic side, I can contend in sprints, but um, in the world cup, against those really top sprinters I have not been able to contend I've had a few that are close that are they're getting a little better um, but just that kind of raw power I am so much more of an endurance skier and, and slow twitch kind of person um, so so yeah the the mass starts can be kind of tough to really um, build those those surges of pace or match it on on the flip of a coin um, and a lot of that is also just yeah, the dynamics of skiing in a pack with people. And so I think it's valuable to train with people and, um, and yeah, just if you have to match someone else's switch from V2 to V1 or matching little accelerations, try to always be practicing that. So that's why I kind of introduced you the way I did. I consider you to be a pure distance skier. Mm -hmm. You're, you're efficient as heck. You're not uh, a sprinter type, obviously, in my opinion. Yeah. Despite yeah. that, you've won a classic sprint national championship and a skate sprint national championship, and you're regularly up there. But to me, that's different because you're going fast for, let's say, three minutes or, or mm -hmm. something like that. It's, and there are multiple rounds where you might not have qualified first. You just need to qualify. Of course, you qualify highly generally in U.S. nationals. But by the time the final round comes around, you get stronger where some people get get more fatigue. So, yeah. but when it comes to, when it comes to international racing, I understand just qualifying is, just qualifying is a huge challenge in itself. And that's why I kind of brought up the acceleration and mass starts because obviously Tracy Hall kind of changes everything when it comes to mass starts because <laughs> she goes right out from the, from the gate and it kind of changes the whole thing. But if you were to do a mass start that was more traditional in the World Cup, you're looking at more of a sustained pace with huge accelerations when people make moves that you have to cover. And if you're able to cover it, then, then, then you're there. If you can't cover it, then you're gapped. So that's a, that's a tricky one. And that's why I brought it up because that's a distance uh, discipline, mass starts. Yeah. So, yeah. so what are you doing to try to improve your ability to surge and accelerate within a distance race? Yeah, well, focus. with uh, with Peppa's training, we're we're doing a lot of speeds. Um, almost every distance ski I go on, especially here during the fall, we'll do at least a few little accelerations, and um, and so always working on that. Yeah, from from slow to fast, or if they're just um, speeds from a dead stop, it varies what we're doing. Um, yeah, so so doing some of that and speeds in groups of people and. Um, yeah, and, and power, like quick motions in the gym. I'm, I'm trying to bring in all of these different details to try to build more quickness. Um, but I also, in, in uh, mass starts, the way the women have been racing these days in the World Cup, um, because Yohog and others are going out just crazy straight from the gun, it, it almost doesn't even do too many surges. It is just really fast, really hot right from the start. And so I think in that sense, then it's more about like efficiency and, 
and effectively it might feel like a surge to go over a hill, especially if you're the 20th person in line. Um, and so just being a more adaptable skier like that and, um, and being able to match people over hills and, and sustain that kind of surge, even though the overall pace from the front might not change much. Right. Yeah, it is quite different. I remember in um, Sochi, no often in 50k was basically in the front, you know, the, the top five places the whole time with, and then with five k's left, the race started, <laughs> you know, and it's a whole different sport kind of, you know, in terms of, yeah. it's not a distance race, but it's not a sprint, but it's certainly not a distance race because yeah. basically a 50k that's been turned into a 5k and you got to ski like a, an 11 minute 5k after 45 k's in order to be in there, you know, and but yeah. the women don't have that dynamic because of the fast starting Johaug and others have adopted that. It's almost like a, an interval start mass start race because you have to, you can't, you can't think that way. If you blow up, you're, you're in big trouble. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so a lot of the, the mass starts like a 30 K mass start kind of feels like a 10 K for the first 10 K and maybe for the second 10 K too. Yeah. So we just have to build, like keep building the ability to, yeah, sort of surge over the tops, like ski everything really efficiently so that you can recover in any little segment you can and, and yeah, have, have a lot of strength and speed uh, in your training to draw from. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, you're obviously a very successful all-around all skier. Um, you've got 12 top 30 results in the World Cup. You know, that's, that's a lot. That's really good. Those are all points. You've got five distance titles, U.S. championship distance titles, along with two sprint titles. When you train, we've, we're just talking about acceleration, but in general, do you train as a distance skier, an all-arounder? Do you train as a sprinter? I've seen other skiers internationally train as a sprinter and then do better in distance or train, you know, and so on. Sprinters training with distance. Is there, is there some aspect of training that you, like a person would think that you wouldn't necessarily do, but you benefit really well from it. So you train more like a sprinter or more like a something or other. How does that work with you? Yeah, good question. Um, I would I would say I train like a distance skier, or I think I do, and yet at the same time, I have to recognize that I need to train my weaknesses, not just I need to not go out for four-hour runs every week, even though I could do that and love to do that, um, but instead, like, do a lot of power work in the gym and these all these sprints or, or hard, fast intervals, um, yeah, so I think of it as training as a distance skier or for distance, but it has a lot of sprint aspects too and trying to build the power. So, for example, thank you. Uh, to build on that, I have a look back at my career. I was, I had strength and good power, but the reality is I was a distance skier. I'm, I'm naturally efficient. I mitochondrially dense, slow twitch. You know, I, I could generate some power. And so looking back at it, and even towards the end of my career, I would recognize if I can get really fast over, let's say, three to five minutes, really fast, I'm going to be fast for 15Ks, 10Ks, 5Ks. Like for yeah. me, and I think you're pretty similar. So if yeah. you've got any kind of benchmarks or focus where you think, okay, I know I'm efficient. So if I can get super fast for three to five minutes, maybe job done, because that's probably your limiting factor, huh? Yeah, because, well, like, the other day I was, I was doing a workout, we were doing 90-second intervals, um, running with poles, and so they're fairly short, but not that short, 
Um, and then I was, I made it through quite a few, um, quite a handful and was done with the main part of my set, but Peppa wanted me to, um, to go race one of the guys for the last bit of their interval. And, um, and so I started and only did the last 20 seconds compared to the guys who were doing a full 90 seconds. And it was, it's sort of a nice breath of fresh air reminder that for 20 seconds, I could go faster, even though the guys were going absolute maximum for 90 seconds. And usually in, in 90 seconds, they would be at least 10 seconds ahead of me by the end. But in those 20 seconds, I can go faster. So I think that is a good reminder always that, um, yeah, that like in skiing, it doesn't actually matter how fast you can move for 10 seconds. It matters how fast you can move for 10 seconds after 15 minutes or or whatever that it just it adds up a lot so you really in most cases we don't need the the raw extreme pure speed but we need to be able to create moderate speed for a long time right i would say at the same time if you look at a a person who's naturally a sprinter their goal in becoming a distance skier is to become more efficient mm -hmm. and i think that it's easy to forget that as a, a distance-oriented skier who's someone who's very efficient, the it's easy for us to say, well, I'm just going to do a bunch of hours and become even more efficient. But the mm -hmm. reality is what you're running up against is, let's say you do a 5K and you compare your pace to doing a prologue, a, a qualifier for a sprint. Yep. I don't think the pace is going to be that different. No. <laughs> and that's the challenge. If you can get your prologue to be much faster, then you're not going to be skiing at 98% of your potential for those, for that, for the 5k, you know? So I yeah. think that the, the more that, the, the less you have to ski, I'm busy. The less you have to do that, the better, you know, yeah. if you're not skiing 98% of your potential for a 5k, if you're only at 90%, then you can improve. Yeah. So that, I think that's a key point. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's, I mean, it's kind of a little bit related to the whole training, like keep your easy skiing easy and your hard skiing hard is sort of similarly like distance pace. And then there, there really should be a bump up to higher power to faster pace. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you are and have been an elite mountain runner. Yeah, that, somewhat. You, yeah. I mean, didn't you go to world championships one year, for example? Yep, I did. That's pretty elite. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. You're presenting the United States and world championships in mountain running. Mm -hmm. um, first off, have you ever done the mountain marathon? I guess you're a little young. Okay. Yeah, a little bit young. And, and I was always afraid of, or was worried about downhill running then, like, well, in high school as a adolescent girl and definitely plenty of like overuse injuries or just body trying to figure out its own balance and strength to hold up. So I was not going to be doing a race that involved downhill then. Now I could imagine it, but I haven't been back there at the right time since. So here's a question. Uh, it doesn't sound like you have as much, nearly as much of a passion for mountain running as you do for skiing based on your, the response you just gave. Um, is that you love, might love the, uh, the activity because, you know, it's very related, but in terms of the competitions, are you, are you as passionate about it as skiing? Well, there's a few things at play there, um, which is definitely that I, I am focused very much on skiing right now because it's what I've been focusing on for a long time. And, and I believe I can be among the best in the world at it. Um, and as such, ski training 
means we need to keep upper body muscle um, means we need to build this power. We've been talking about like the sprint power and I feel like my natural tendency towards mountain running could be to get into longer stuff and just longer running is not going to be conducive to keeping power. And so in part, it's just sort of picking and choosing, like if I want to stay and be a skier, I need to kind of limit the amount of real long running or, or long racing that I do because I don't believe they're compatible. So I do, I, I really like mountain running. I also think like I, I did go to world championships for, for mountain running. Um, but running is unique and different from skiing in the sense that in skiing, at least everyone who's a Nordic skier goes to us nationals if it happens unlike this year. Um, but with running, there's like, there's track running, there's road running, there's mountain running, there's trail running, there's just all these different profusions of techniques and types. And so you don't necessarily have everyone who's best at it showing up at the same event. Um, so I, I did well enough in a race to get to go to Worlds, um, but it wasn't necessarily a very heavily contested race you could say and um yeah i'll say this about myself but i mean i did i did fine but i think there's a lot of runners out there who are a lot better so um yeah so looking at the broader running scene i enjoy it a lot but i don't know that in a raw sense i could be as good of a runner okay yeah so getting back to craftsbury and skiing you have obviously an amazing training group there Mm -hmm. do you do you ever do workouts by yourself because it seems like you have tons of amazing training partners but I do think there's some value in working out by yourself sometimes so I'm curious how yeah. you manage that yeah so there's there's a little bit of both um we do have yeah we have a lot of organized practices or um scheduled things and and um intervals i definitely do with the group um at least at least we start them as a group or if anyone needs to go out on their own they can but in general i think intervals are very valuable to do as a group because you're always um, pushing each other a little bit or working on efficiency if if you're at a, a lower threshold pace um, and and everyone has different strengths and weaknesses so i have um, some new some new teammates some younger teammates um, Margie Freed, Michaela Keller-Miller, they just joined the GRP this year, and then Alex Lawson from Middlebury and Evelina Sutro from UVM have been training with us this summer um, and now into the fall. And so all four of those, they're quite a bit younger than me, but they all have some great strengths. So um, I think some doing intervals together is really valuable. And then distance, it kind of varies. I mean, sometimes sometimes a distance workout can be a really good opportunity to to either unwind from other things you've been thinking about or to spend a really focused few hours working on some kind of technique or um or yeah physical focus that you're working on um so so the distance workouts vary i do i do quite a few with people but there's also quite a handful that are solo or we might start out together and then people split off into um, smaller groups or solo. Cool. That makes sense. I yep. just want to know how you manage that. Caitlin, mm -hmm. do you have a favorite race? You've had a lot of great races over your career, but do you have a favorite one? It might even be one when you were a junior or something, but just something that evoked some emotion that you think on fondly. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. Good question. I think if I 
if I think back towards a particular race or it's almost more like a race weekend I or race series even I do have very good memories from the U.S. Nationals in Anchorage um, back in oh that would have been 2018 um, because of that that was the one where I was very successful and won the national title in all four races um, so that that of course was fun in itself it is the the positive cycle of reinforcement um, but also just being back up there in Alaska after I've lived here in Vermont for a while, but I still have friends in Alaska and a lot of family friends coming up and talking to me and congratulating and, and just good memories from Alaska, as well as, of course, it was the, um, effectively the qualifier for the Olympic team. And so the feelings of like, of trying to peak, like dialing in the preparation for that week and then nailing it and, and everything coming together um, was definitely a memorable and great week. Absolutely. I, I, it was obvious, you know, the made for some great headlines and I'm sure you had a blast too. It's yeah. about taking the pressure off, you know, you went through races yeah. in a row at nationals, the fourth yeah. one, not a do or die situation. <laughs> yeah. So Caitlin, do you have a magic bullet type workout? I mean, a workout for you that is so core that if you know you do it, and you do it well, you're going to be pretty prepared for the coming season. I can't say I really do. I, um, yeah, every year it changes a little bit. I, I was thinking of in, as we get into the fall like this, some fall roller skiing, I do really like 30 thirties, um, because so 30 seconds on 30 seconds off. And we've done some long sets of them, like 20, 30, 40 minutes straight. Um, and it is incredible how fast you can go and how, how hard you can make it. Um, but so I guess I like to dig into some of those really hard workouts that um, just make you feel all the training that's been put in the bank. But I wouldn't say that I have a, a pure magic bullet workout. Cool. That's probably a sensible answer. If you do, you probably are making a mistake, but <laughs> yeah. it's still a neat way of thinking about it. Yeah, it is. And I think it's quite fascinating how I've talked to some cyclists or various runners, like people have such set benchmarks of like power meters or, or running times on tracks. And we just, I mean, we try to have some time trials of skiing or, um, and keep on the same wheels from year to year. But I don't know, I mean, temperature affects roller ski wheels so much and, and rain the night before affects a running time trial so they're just not that clear-cut benchmark so I think um, it can be good or bad but I prefer to think of it as that we're adaptable and we are getting ready for a race however we can. Yeah absolutely. So it seems as though you and your brother Scott love to adventure or play in the outdoors together a whole lot. Is there any one particular adventure activity that you do together that you'd like to tell us about? Um, yeah, we certainly, we like to get out and, and I did miss that this summer since it wasn't really sensible to travel. I didn't get to go up to Alaska because I do, I do like to visit there and go play in the mountains with Scott. Um, let's see. Um, but we, yeah, mountain running can be good, but it's sometimes a little bit hard for me to keep up. I have to pick and choose what's, what's going to work. So I think I would say one of my favorites is, um, is backcountry skiing these days because I've loved to get into backcountry skiing recently. Um, so yeah, so Scott's taken me on some good ones up in Alaska and we also did a little bit in Montana this past spring. Um, but I, so I would say, I guess one of the most memorable was a few years ago in Alaska, we, um, 
joined a few of Scott's other friends to go ski up this um, big shield volcano over some glacier crossings and and um, up yeah up across a glacier and and then needing to come back down and and the experience of being on a rope team and crossing a glacier on skis and overnight uh winter camping and such things like that were were quite the memorable experience but it's also great to know that my brother's there and he's looking out for me a little bit and um though though I will try to keep going as as fast as is reasonable but he also will wait for me occasionally if needed sounds fantastic that's cool um Caitlin I'm the topo glove designer and have been for ever since their existence and I always love to hear from athletes or people in general which is your favorite Toco glove model and why? Yeah, so my favorite is definitely the Toco Thermo Plus because it's just such a good mid-winter, mid-weight glove. And I can think of so many times, like when I think of wearing the Thermo Plus and being out skiing, it's like extra blue days, sunshine, like mid-winter, cool, but not too cold because I'm certainly one with, with fairly cold hands. So I'm going to be wearing that glove when it's in the... 20s or maybe down to the teens. Um, yeah, so a lot of good memories with that. Um, of course, there's, there's plenty of, of cold or wet days out in the winter too, but when I think of that one, I think of the extra blue days. Cool. Thank you. Uh, what do you see yourself doing in 10 years? And probably if you wouldn't comment, maybe where, do you know, I don't know if you know where, but what and where? Yeah, um, what would be I, my undergraduate degree was in civil engineering, and I'm still interested in that. I haven't really worked in it since I've been focused on skiing here, but I'd like to be a structural engineer and, and work on building design. Um, so in, in 10 years' time, I would hope that I would be well on the way to that and, and an expert in my field at, at engineering. Um, as far as where, I'm more flexible on that. I wouldn't be surprised if I head back, head out to the west. Um, I've missed the mountains from out here, but I've also been enjoying Vermont. So yeah, I'm not sure where. Cool. Is there something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? <laughs> sure a lot. Uh, yeah, probably, probably a few things. Um, one that I like to tell people that, yeah, most, most are surprised, the few people who know, is that I um, I quite enjoy snowboarding. I did a lot of snowboarding when I was in elementary school and middle school when we were um, still living in Idaho. And um, when I was really little, we did some alpine skiing, but then I switched over to snowboarding. <laughs> and so I think I think it amuses people the combination of of a Nordic skier and a snowboarder. Yeah, yeah. you also play the violin at a pretty high level, from what I understand. Yeah, yeah, I play the violin and and a little mandolin too. Cool. Um, yep. uh, do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Yeah, I would say so. One that keeps coming back that I've used before is focus on the moment. And so I've used that to like, don't, don't stress about the past or the present or what's going to happen. And, and it's especially relevant right now with, with COVID around the world and uncertainties about what will happen with race season or with anything else in this country. Um, and so just focusing on the moment. Um, and it also, it was particularly helpful to me as a mantra one year when I had a few um, 
in the early season of Nordic racing, I had a few kind of big crashes, um, just like just legs getting too wobbly and losing my footing. And so I brought like the physical aspect of that, like focus on the moment. Like when I'm going down a hill around a corner, I am focusing, I am all in full focus on this moment and stepping around the, the, the downhills more carefully. I think that's a powerful mantra. Um, it's easy for us to kind of think about being a Nordic ski racer and also a person in general, but so much about the physical aspect because it's such a physically demanding sport and activity. But uh, a mantra like that will serve you well and, and, and bring other, make you stronger in many ways, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, less mistakes, more focused, better yeah. perspective. That's really great. Thanks. Well, um, I'm, I thank you for joining me today and for kind of showing yourself to the American public. I'm, th these podcasts have been really well received. I'm sure this will be a very popular one. So thank you very much for doing this and I look forward to seeing you around. I'm not sure when that's going to be since we're pretty far apart and everything's regional this winter, but I hope if nothing else, I'll see you next winter. Okay, great. Thanks, Ian. Okay, thank you again.